The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Time. Facts of assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Uh, I'd like you to cast your minds back, if you will, to 1970. Edward Heath is Prime Minister. The Vietnam War is in full, ghastly progress. Monty Python is the biggest show on TV. And Annie Nightingale has just become the first woman ever to be a DJ on BBC Radio. Can I ask you to start by just telling us, in outline, how it came about that that day in 1970 when you became... uh, Well, with great difficulty, um, and it had taken a long time, um, I had decided during the time of the pirate radio that this is a... I had a very romantic vision of pirate radio, that pirate DJs, um, they were in international waters. Now, that alone sounds rather exciting. It was illegal. They were playing great music. I'd started off as a journalist. I was okay, but I, I loved the music and I wanted to be part of it. And I found that just writing, reviewing a record, what were you going to say? Mid-tempo toe-tapper. You know, it's not really, doesn't really get across what that music is doing to you. Much better if you could play it on the radio and just say to the person listening, and it's always singular, I think this is amazing. What do you think? Do you like it as well? Is it always just me? And it really is that simple, and it always was. That's what I wanted to do. Um, Radio 1 had been set up once the Pirates had been banned, and uh, I didn't actually like the sound of it at all, because I thought it would be watered-down establishment version of something which had been very exciting. And so I was not pro this idea at all. But, you know, that was all we were going to get. The pirates had been outlawed, banned. Um, they were no more. And so all we, had, all we were going to have was Radio 1. So Radio 1 began. And I thought, OK, well, OK, uh, maybe I, I could do this then, maybe. By then, I'd had a career in TV as a presenter, uh, as a journalist. I'd written for magazines, newspapers. I'd had a newspaper background in local papers, which I'm incredibly grateful for now, not at the time. And... Um, 
So this seemed a logical step. And so, you know, I went to the new radio one and said, well, you know, how about, how about, you know, I'd like to be a DJ. And he went, no. I went, oh, um, why is that? And he went, no, because you're a woman. <laughs> what? And I hadn't, believe it or not, I had not experienced sexism until then. I'd been like the only girl in the office in the newspaper office. Well, that was all right, you know, it was just a, it was a, it just didn't cross my mind that it was an issue. And you say, well, wh why not women? They went, oh, and they, and they came up with these ridiculous excuses like our voices wouldn't have any um, authority, wouldn't carry well on shortwave. Really? Um, and um, I think their deep down reason was that they they thought that we would, uh, I or anyone else, a female, would be a threat to the female audience that they were trying to they were trying to build up. My theory is that the, the BBC, the whole big BBC, didn't want Radio One in any way. It there was a stop to the government. The government outlawed the powers. Oh well, we've got to give these kids what they want. Maybe we'll just do it for a year and then it'll all die down and we can close it down and forget it ever happened. Um, so I think that the people who originally started Radio 1 thought, right, the only way we can kind of make this work, have a massive audience. So they turned those people into massive names, bigger than the, the artists that they were actually playing the music on. Um, and so they became these sort of household names. It's never happened in any other country. I mean, you can't name me a DJ in Australia or probably not America, maybe Howard Stern. You know, you have these shock jocks nowadays, but not a music DJ. So it, they'd never been, it was, an, it was a new kind of character, but they were all men. Do you think that the BBC management types were suddenly dealing with something at Radio 1 that they were completely out of their depth with, that they didn't know how to deal with these giant sort of celebrity characters. Well, they made characters. them into giants. They weren't celebrity giants until they made them into that. They hadn't been anybody's, really. I mean, they'd been known as the pirate DJs, and so they had quite a reputation, but it wasn't huge. And so these guys that were starting to be, uh, uh, Radio 1 at the time were mostly technical people. Well, they come from the RAF. <laughs> I mean, it so sounds crazy, but, well, they've got to start somewhere. Why, why not be from the RF? But they were not used to media. I think that's the big difference. So they were not used to... They built these guys up to get the publicity machine going. So they did. So in those first few years, Radio 1 audience is something like 18 million. Nobody gets that nowadays. Nobody. Nobody on Radio 2 or... You know, I don't think even, you know, the Queen's Christmas broadcast hardly gets 18 minutes. So it was quite an extraordinary situation. So they got this audience, and I think they thought that they were all young housewives. You know, the idea of women working obviously didn't kind of cross their minds particularly. They thought everyone was a nice little housewife at home doing the washing up, whatever. And I think they were afraid to have a woman. They thought that a woman would, would make, them, make them jealous. I mean, I said, you know, girls do actually have... Girlfriends, believe it or not, of the same gender. So hadn't it cost them up? Anyway, that's the Do you remember the first show? Can you actually recall that first day? Oh, very much so, yeah. Can you just describe it? Was that for us? It, was <laughs> it was a disaster. It was a complete and utter disaster. It was days of vinyl, and I'd been half shown how to work this studio. So there's this record going around, and I thought, well, I'll do something useful. Uh, it's not doing anything, so I'll just stop it. So I pressed this sort of stop button. Now, it didn't stop. It went... Nyeh. 
very slowly and ground to a halt. It was the record that's being broadcast. And nobody knew what on earth to do. And there was eight seconds of dead air. It was like eight years. It really was, because everyone was going, what's happened? What's happened? You know. So I completely blew it on the first turn. I thought, well, that's going to be the end of me. But they did give me another opportunity <laughs> to make more mistakes, which you have to do, you know. But being this first woman, I had a real, real complex about it because I thought they're looking to see what mistakes I can make. So my early days were utter fear, <laughs> utterly terrified all the time. Can you tell us a bit about your? Tell us a bit about your family. What kind of family were you? Do you have siblings? Were you a no, bookish I'm, kid? I'm the, only, I'm the only one. I do think that that does kind of affect you. I think in a good way. I never felt deprived. I do think it's probably you get more used to getting your own way. I'm sorry to say, but um, possibly not materially. Um, I had the most. I don't like the word normal because there's no such thing as normality in human beings. I don't think. But I had the most average suburban, semi-detached, I mean, I had this, exactly the same upbringing as all the, you know, a, a whole lot of other people, and nobody else seemed to want to go on this mad path that I wanted to take, and I still don't know why it was, and I was just incredibly affected by music, immensely so, so it was so listening to the radio. What, what age were you when you left school, and what happened then? I was... Um, 17, and I had seen a movie called Roman Holiday, which I'm sure many people might remember, Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. And Gregory Peck, it was him, wasn't it? Uh, he played a reporter. And with most girls, they probably think, oh, I want to be Audrey Hepburn, I want to be the princess. And I thought, no, so he's got the gig, he's got the good gig. He's driving around in a sports car having adventures. So that's what I thought, right, I'll do that. I want to be a reporter, a journalist. It was not fashionable at the time. I went to a very, very academic school. If you were not looking like you were Oxbridge material, which I wasn't, because I was out going clubbing and raving and stuff, and the school didn't approve me at all. So I was not considered Oxbridge material. And so I said, I want to be a journalist. I found a course in central London which is then a polytechnic. It was the only course I could find anywhere that did journalism. So I went there, and that was my one year, and that was all I had, because my parents said, after that, you've got to get a job. So I had a great year. I discovered Soho quite early on. Really. <laughs> um, the course was actually hopeless. Um, and people said, don't ever tell anyone you've done this course, or you will never get a job <laughs> in journalism. That's true. And we had, um, supposed to learn shorthand. The shorthand teacher, she encouraged everyone to cheat so we would all pass our exams. So that was, a, but it was a bit of growing up. And I did, I, I, I met some very interesting people in Soho, let's put it back that way, and survived a year of that, actually, in one piece. So what was your first paper? What was your first job on a newspaper? Uh, first, on a, well, I'd started off with a news agency, which was very dubious, and it was not a good place to be. Soon after that, I went to Brighton, and I got a job on a local paper called the Brighton and Hove Gazette, which was a weekly. And this was the making of uh, um, a anybody, because the big stories got given to other people, the big crime reporters and all the, all the you know, the stars, they got all the best. So you would end up doing court reporting and go to sit in court and there'd be a driving offence. Someone's driven without due care and attention 
and they pleaded not guilty. And you think, we're going to be here till lunchtime. <laughs> and it's going to be one paragraph. Now, if you can get something out of that, or oh, I'd have to go to Paris Council meetings. It was the best, best start anyone could have. And much later on, when I was doing a show on Radio 1 called The Request Show, and people write me long, long letters. And I learned how to, as your journalist, just sub them and, so that they go, Dear Annie, please, 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 please. And they write, please, literally four pages worth of please. And you get to the end of that thing, well, what do you actually want me to play? And it was always Duran Duran at that time. <laughs> um, and so, but in there, there'd be a spelling mistake or a little line that was quite funny at the end. And that is what you read out, not the, I really like your show. We think that's very nice, but other people, it's not interesting. It's not, you know, that's nice for me to hear, but that's not, that's not entertaining for the audience. So you're, you're making, I learned to make, something out of all these letters I, I used to get from their mistakes, from their quirkiness. Um, and I think that all came from this background of doing the local newspaper. And I'm so indebted now. I didn't think so at the time. I thought I'm 18, my life is ebbing away. I really did. Um, I, then I applied to the Financial Times to be woman's editor at 18. <laughs> And I got, I got shortlisted. I thought, wow, I've, I've got, I've got jobs. You know, the confidence of you. So I go see the editor of the Brighton Evening Argus, which is the main paper, whose name was Victor Gorringe. I mean, what a wonderful name for an editor. And I said, I'm resigning. I've got a job on the Financial Times. He said, okay, fine. Off you go. So of course I got shortlisted. Didn't get the job. Now what were they going to do? So I had to go crawling back to him and say. Can I have my job back, please? You know, and he said, we can be holiday relief. Now, this was a big lesson to learn. You know, I thought I knew it all, and I didn't know anything. Now, your life on the Brighton Arvo, Evening Argus, wasn't it? Brighton yeah, Evening Argus. Yeah. I know that you had a music column called Spin With Me. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What can you do? <laughs> very, Tell very us about Spin With Me. Well, Spin With Me led me to meet the Beatles, so that was all right. In those days, all the, the tours of, um, you know, all the, all the pop groups and all that all, would all come to Brighton. And so they'd all be happy to be interviewed. So obviously once the Beatles happened, there was this huge, it was like a huge wave and you realise that life was changing completely. And I felt I have to be part of this. I have to be part of this. But I couldn't quite see what. So I started managing a band, part of managing a band, who were all right. And then one day I went to see Dusty Springfield playing live in Brighton and the girl sitting in the corner, their feet up on the table. And at the time there was a TV show called Ready, Steady, Go, which I still think is the best TV show pop show has ever been. And this is Vicky Wickham, who was the editor of it. And I said, oh, I've been really longing to meet you because I've got this band I'm managing. We'd like them to be on the show. So she said, OK, well, send it to me. So I sent it to her. And then she got in touch. She said, well, you know, we're not really bothered about them, but we actually, we've got a new sister show and we're looking for a presenter. Would you be interested? Well, would you be interested? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so suddenly I was launched into a, a TV presenting career. I get, it's a bit like the radio. It's very frightening. It's live and no autocue and no time to learn a script. I mean, you'd be in makeup and they go, oh, don't say that bit, just... Um, at this point, uh, just mention this. And you're trying to keep this in all your head, and you're five minutes later, you're, you're on air. It was very scary. But 
I was able to choose a lot of the um, acts that appeared on it. And so I'd say, I think we should have the Yardbirds on next week, so I think that would really be big. And these people come on this show live, and then they go to number one. I was, I was just deeply and ha so happily involved. Anyway, that show did not last long. It was not the success of Ready, Steady, Go. But I used to go out with all the Ready, Steady, Go crew every week. And so suddenly I've got a completely different life. Had you uh, quit your newspaper job? No, 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 I hadn't. But um, I, I mean, it's one that, again, life is just full of mistakes you make. And you just think, oh, this is, I do this. Now I'm a TV presenter. Not necessarily. After 13 weeks, it was cancelled because it wasn't successful. So you're not a TV presenter after all. But you've kind of got a, a taste for it now. And so you're looking for other areas. And I still say being a TV presenter is for the very, very few. You need another job. Those great, great bands that lots of us in the room grew up with and remember. I mean, we have to ask you, you met quite a few of them. Which one, which band, which person really sticks in your mind? Well, I don't say, think they wow. all, they all, they, oh, there's so many, you could not possibly, uh, you couldn't, um, I swear everyone in this room has got, you know, favourite bands. And, um, um, and people ask me now, what's your favourite record? I say, what, of this week? <laughs> <laughs> um, having had my year as a student in, in London, I was actually hanging out with the art students because I thought they were the coolest. They were very hard. Elite took crack actually to break into, but I managed to do that because they 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 just looked all amazing. So when the Beatles appeared, I thought, ah, I see who these people are. They're just like the people that I've been hanging out with mm. as a student, and of course they'd all been at art college, or most of them had. Um, and the interesting thing, and Paul McCartney said this to me quite recently. He said, if national service had still been going on, he said there wouldn't have been any Beatles. We would have been spread out around the country, it wouldn't have happened. So you had this sudden, that, that opening for those, and, and they were, you know, it's mostly blokes, but they suddenly had an opportunity to go to art college and learn what they wanted to do, which most of them, it wasn't fine art, it turned out to be music. But, you know, had they been born a couple of years earlier, that wouldn't have happened. So it's all this timing of, um, that, that I think has affected our history, which is, I find very interesting even now. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. That's really interesting and I think it tells us so much about you know your own mindset and why you've been so successful over so many years and you know that you're not an exercise in nostalgia you're right here no. current day. i'm scared of nostalgia you can't <laughs> go back you can't go back it's not i mean it's all right if you meet somebody who hey do you remember when and back in the day but you can't live in the past so i think it's painful to try and so i'm i'm happy being here now you know here you are you're now going on a couple of years you've now become a regular established fixture 
at Radio 1. You've got your own show. You've got that hugely successful Sunday night request mm. show. I think we, a lot of people here will remember that, and it meant a lot to a lot of people. I'd just like you to think back to that show, that particular show. The thing about that show is I was very concerned the whole time. I was on three-month contracts. I thought, it's too weird, it's too strange, it's been taken over by, I think, the great young people that, that Radio One's intended for. Um, it's, it's, it's too out there, they'll take it off. That was my, that was my fear. Years later, uh, it turns out that people like Radiohead were listening to it, and Mr. Trainspotting, Irving Welsh, who actually wrote a foreword to a book of mine, which he volunteered, I would never dare ask him, um, and saying that, you know, all these people I met later who said that they were listening to it. And the point is, I wanted to, it was the people's show. They suggested what to play. It was like a club, but it was a club that anyone could join. It wasn't supposed to be elite, elitist in any way. And it just proved that people did have, you know, pretty good taste in music, probably more than they're given credit for. Also the time of it, seven o'clock on Sunday night. So people have... If they've been listening to the top 40, as it used to be, and a lot of people just hear the last few minutes to say what's number one this week, they'd be quite interested. So the our trick was, not so much a trick, was try and keep them listening. So the first tune you play, you don't say anything beforehand, but just play a tune that's been good and popular, say no more than five years old, so that you, what you hope is that people will just carry on listening and you hope to draw them in and you would maybe hang on to it, certain that's a hardcore stick with you till nine o'clock, which wouldn't be many because people go off and watch TV. But they were mostly young people doing their homework they should have done on Friday. So that's always the thing. And they were people who, you know, it's pre-internet days, would have a pen in their hand and a piece of paper. So it was a lot easier for them to then write down something. And we'd have themes, we'd have all kinds of bizarre themes or pick someone's name, first name and have everybody of that, or Trevor Day or something like that, so everybody called Trevor would you know, get mentioned, all kinds of things. It, it developed, but it developed organically. It was the listener that made that show work. And this, all I did was find this a little line that they'd written that was sort of very funny. I mean, the Duran Duran fans, as you mentioned, were extraordinary. You knew who they were by the way they wrote their letters. And this, you know, when people wrote letters, and they would put their address, the top right-hand corner, <laughs> and, you know, and they, it was very nicely handwritten. And in the bottom right-hand corner, they would put their Duran Duran fan club number. <laughs> but the bosses were worried that it had been literally sort of taken over by, by students and mm. uh, all these people. But musically, it was... It was adventurous, and that was I'm 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 so grateful to everybody who used to write and suggest things. And some, a lot of them would send you a long list, and you'd know every single time. You think, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. I could build a whole show from this one person's list, and there'd be one tune in it that you didn't know. And you think, right, if all the rest are that good, I'll bet this one is as well. And so I would discover new things that way. Well, I, that made me think: were, were those student requests those? requests for music you didn't know were they your route into the whole acid house and no new no music? that so, no that came so at a different that was what i was going to ask you mm, about that was yeah. a sort of tipping point you yeah it suddenly... was um it, it wasn't through them um that was 
living actually being in Brighton at that time it was a, a very much a hotbed of that kind of music that was another musical revolution in the 90s um, it hasn't really been fully recognized I think people now re realize that punk how important punk was because it blew away all this like, pomp rock and people doing ice shows and I mean it just got ridiculous and two sort of people take themselves too seriously and punk brought it back down to being somewhere where people could play so they could actually see the band and they could be at one with the audience and that had all gone away and so it was another reason why that was a punk happened um, and so Acid House has happened in the late 80s uh, early 90s was a bit like the 60s um, it, and it was it was very inclusive. Now, by now, I have been well around the block, obviously, several times. I thought, this is not my party, but I was very enthused about the music. So I was playing it um, on Radio 1. And I actually moved to a later slot because these tunes were like 12 minutes long. And, I, you know, wanted to be played in their entirety. So you wouldn't get through many of those in, in two hours on a Sunday night. So it was nicer to move to a later slot. We could be more e experimental. And then this whole thing took off hugely. And again, I think it'd been people had been disillusioned with what they, young people then in the 80s had to go to clubs where everything was run by the breweries and they had to leave at two and some bouncer would tell them, no, you can't come in here or get out there. It was not a nice environment for young people to go out and express themselves and enjoy themselves. So this was a complete alternative. So people having parties in fields or in disused warehouses and setting up, and the DJ became the star. You didn't need a band anymore. So when Ashley House came along, these new breed of DJs, people like Andrew Weatherall, and later on Giles Peterson, people with fabulous talent um, had changed the whole thing. So the DJ now became the star, and they would arrive with this vinyl, it's like 12 inch vinyl, with white, there was nothing written on it. And this was the only copy. So that you would go to this club to hear this one copy, of this record made and this was a, a huge event you know it's a unique event so you would queue for hours just to go and s see what they were doing you know the word rave actually goes back to the 1950s mm. um but the word rave suddenly happened again so people were having parties on the beach so i lived in brighton and there were sort of um you know parties in the middle of the night on on the beach the police would come um and they'd actually quite want to join in but they'd say well, um, I'm, I'm going off duty at five o'clock, I'll just go and get to I'll be back. <laughs> or they would say, do you know, next week, we will be past it, so, so. So they were on your side, really. And um, the people weren't really doing any harm to anybody. Just, but it was not being regulated by the breweries. Yeah. So when, once they got wind of this, of course, they were horrified because the young people were now taking a bottle of water, drinking a bottle of water, and they weren't drinking they beer were and lager. They were taking other stuff as well. They were doing other stuff, yeah. So what, what ecstasy yeah. did fuel the acid house uh, Yes, it did, yeah. Mm. Did that, how did you deal with that? But you're quite a bit older than these kids. Yeah, now. that's a good question. All right, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, after acid house, now, now you're going to have to help me and the audience. Okay. Uh, bass, breakbeat, yeah. Yeah. trap, grime. Yeah, good. Do you want to right, really explain a little bit? Okay, well, I th they, they do like, some people like these sort of niche phrases and stuff like that. And as soon as craft work happened, I could see that electronic music was going to be massive. Um, and it, it wasn't about, any more about people having to play real instruments. 
and you could also make sounds which you couldn't play on with real instruments. So that was to me, that was what is interesting. Creatively, it was unique. You know, you could make you could make a sound with a computer or something that nobody's ever heard before, and that to me is kind of part of you know the point of being creative in music is just to, to, to do something like that. So I was always always very pro electronic music, although a lot of people weren't for quite a long time. Musicians themselves saw their jobs going out the window. You know, if they were um, in a proper orchestra or band, and now they've been replaced by a synthesizer. But, you know, I'm afraid that's what happens, is progress, you know, internet, everything changes. People sometimes must say to you, Annie, do you really like this stuff? Oh, yes, they do. Uh, they do. Yes, I would not spend all my time. I'm downloading tracks from first thing in the morning. Uh, I get hundreds of cent every day. You are listening for something that's going to be absolutely wonderful. You won't maybe hear once a year, once or twice a year, you think, that's it. That's going to be... And I was it's still that thing of wanting to play it to somebody else and say, I think it's amazing. What do you think? Do you like it as well? And feel that you are on, on that kind of parallel with people that you do... You, there's something that you can in, both enjoy. It's, that hasn't changed. Everything else has changed about it. But so radio is a very, very simple medium. You could also do other things while you're listening to the radio. We all do. You know, you're driving, you're doing the washing up, you do anything else. You're doing your homework, you're doing your accounts, you can do everything. It's your friend and it's one person speaking to one person. That's why I think it's survived. And this is now worldwide, you know, there's people in Ukraine, obviously there's a lot of people, in, I play a lot of American music at the moment, which I think, happen to think it's, it's a very, this musical trap, it's very innovative. Um, but, you know, there are people in Russia making that music. And I used to dream, wouldn't it be wonderful if, well, if Radio 1 could be heard around, around the world? Now it is. To me, it's a great romance still about that. It's like, you know, it's so very simple. You speak to the microphone, and it goes out into outer space. You don't know where it's going to end up. You don't know who might listen to it. Um, or when they might get it. You know, maybe in light years' time. They'll, and I know it probably sounds very naive, but that's, to me, that is the kind of, it's, it's a very romantic thing. That's what ke is another thing that keeps me going. I'm fascinated to know where all this goes to next. We couldn't have imagined the internet, well, some people did. We couldn't have imagined the progress has been in, in my lifetime. It's absolutely staggering. And I feel like saying to people, you're living in a documentary. Everybody, we're all living in a documentary. Every day, you know, there is something potentially very, very exciting happening. Maybe that's the journalist in me that finds the moment brilliant, you know, and be able to go, and yeah, I was there. I was at that, I was at that event. I remember that. Do you remember it when it was on? Just I, say that simple. Do you know, I had a question written down to finish, and it said, the question more or less said, Annie, how come you're still there after all these years? And in fact, listening to you, your intelligence, your passion, your commitment has answered that question for me uh, 100%. I don't think we need to answer it. Oh. And thank you so much, Annie. Knight. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag Annie Nightingale. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend watching the full video interview on the IAI TV player. You might also enjoy Not Only Rock and Roll, an exploration of the 60s cultural revolution with flower power icon Jenny Boyd. 
If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. We love to hear your feedback, so please do email us on podcast at iai.tv. We'll be back next time exploring the role of shame in society. Thank you.